Welcome to Harmonia. I'm Angela Mariani, inviting you to join me for the next hour as today's performers of medieval Renaissance and Baroque music bring to life the music of the distant past. This week on Harmonia, we're marking the 20th anniversary of the passing of Thomas Binkley, one of the pioneers in the field of medieval music and its performance practice, and founder of the Early Music Institute at Indiana University, now called the Historical Performance Institute. We'll hear portions of the Harmonia program that was broadcast soon after his passing, including some interviews with Bigley and some important historical recordings. Pues sí, 
Leo Chansonetteville by Troubadour Guillaume de Bonnet from a very influential 1970s recording called Chanson der Troubadour by the Studio der Frühenmusik under the direction of Thomas Binkley. On this week's edition of Harmonia, we commemorate the 20th anniversary of Binkley's passing, including a reprise of parts of our 1995 memorial broadcast. For many American music students listening to the Norton Anthology back in the 70s, the music you're hearing would have been the first piece of medieval instrumental music they ever heard, Estampita Palamento, played by the Studio de Frühenmusik, directed by Thomas Binkley, and some of his students and colleagues at the Schola Cantorum in Basel, Switzerland. And when I say many American students in the 70s, I include myself. If I remember correctly, I bolted out of my seat after class to find out from the professor who was that? What was that? Fourteen years later, I decided to go back to grad school, walked into my audition at the Indiana University School of Music, and the person responsible for that recording shook my hand and said, Hi, I'm Tom Binkley. For about 35 years, Binkley was one of early music's foremost performers, scholars, and educators, particularly in the area of medieval music. His recordings with his colleagues in the Studio de Frühenmusik, Andrea von Ram, Sterling Jones, and at different times, singers Nigel Rogers, Richard Levitt, and Willard Cobb, brought to the table a completely different approach to medieval music than anyone had done previously, as we will hear. He also became an important teacher of historical performance practice in Switzerland, California, and Indiana, where he founded the Early Music Institute in 1980, now the Historical Performance Institute. Those who came in contact with his teaching were by turns inspired, provoked, skeptical, convinced, stumped, enlightened, delighted, provoked, and challenged, sometimes all at once, a state of mind that many of us students came to refer to as being binked, 
But one thing was sure, we never heard or played that music quite the same way again. Estampita Palamento, performed by the Studio de Frühenmusik, or Studio for Early Music, originally from a recording called Estampi, and later included in several editions of the Norton Anthology of Music. On this week's edition of Harmonia, we're commemorating the 20th anniversary of the passing of groundbreaking medieval music performer and scholar Thomas Binkley. We'll listen to some of Binkley's enormously influential recordings and celebrate his contribution to the world of early music in terms of his own music making and the profound effect he had on hundreds of students, many of whom went on to become prominent early music performers and scholars themselves. We'll also listen to a conversation recorded at the studios of WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana in 1992 when Binkley was interviewed by English violinist John Holloway. That interview was first broadcast on Harmonia in 1995, shortly after Binkley passed away at age 63. In this first cut from the interview, Tom tells about the founding of the Studio de Frühenmusik. The studio began its work in 1959, and 
uh, for those of us that can still remember a little bit about 1959's musical scene, uh, things were a good bit different. Early music in those days was Monteverdi. Uh, pieces uh, of, of, let's say, French 15th century were occasionally played, but uh, very seldom played, if ever, in their complete forms. Uh, the instruments were normally incorrect historically and, and so forth. The, the whole area of what lies between improvisation and the written score uh, was not even discussed. Uh, in other words, uh, things were a good bit different then than now. Things have evolved considerably. How did you get into this then? I suppose you want the truth. Uh, the truth is that I took my doctoral examinations uh, at a major university and decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life with these people and went to Europe and uh, borrowed some money and, and uh, got the studio going. Got the studio going. Did the other members of the studio kind of choose themselves? Were they the only other people who were interested? Was it a... By no means. Uh, I was in Munich on a Fulbright scholarship and uh, met a number of people and there were some organizations there playing uh, what at that time counted as early music. Uh, I met Nigel Rogers there. He was singing uh, with the, uh, as an extra with the, with the Bavarian Radio Choir. And Andrea von Ram was uh, a well-known oratorio soloist in those parts, a mezzo. And uh, quite by accident, I ran across these people, and uh, uh, we formed a kind of a nucleus. And Sterling Jones, an American who I met in this country, the United States, uh, came over and uh, about a year later we uh, we formed the group and started working with uh, together with a, uh, a Bavarian uh, chap who uh, was an amateur musician but uh, but was in a position to uh, be of great great help to us. Uh, he later dropped out, and, and that that sort of grub staked our first year. And what was the repertoire that you started with? Well, l let me say that we started without. Uh, with the intent of giving concerts, but without uh, gigging at all in, in the modern sense. We started with a plan to develop repertoire. So we started, I think, with, uh, with English repertoire and then went to Italian repertoire and then German repertoire. We would spend several months uh, rehearsing a particular repertoire, then we would present that in some sort of a house concert and, uh, and move on to the next. So that we spent really a whole year uh, of, of working. And uh, by working, I mean we, we did, as a matter of fact, for our whole career, we, we normally rehearsed four to six hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we would build up this repertoire, present it, and then move on to the next. And, and as I say, after about a year, why we were ready to, uh, to embark on, on concert tours. Do you have any recordings from, from that early? From moment? 1959, I... Doubted. The first recording we made was a, a Telefunken recording, uh, which I do have a copy, uh, called Frühe Musik in Deutschland. And we could play a, sp uh, a spot of that because that does exemplify the sort of thing that we were doing in 1959, although this was, this was actually made, I think, in 1960 or 61, maybe. Right. Uh, there are two pieces there that might be interesting in terms of the evolution. One is Ich bringe an diesen Ringe, an instrumental piece. Mm -hmm. uh, and that exemplifies sort of the way that in 1960 I thought this music should be played. And another one is uh, Oswald von Falkenstein's In Surya and Breitenhall, which is the way I thought in those days a monophonic song should be performed.
Andrea von Rahm and Thomas Binkley, recorded in the 1960s with the groundbreaking medieval ensemble Studio de Frühenmusik. This week on Harmonia, we're commemorating the 20th anniversary of the passing of Thomas Binkley with excerpts from a memorial program that originally aired in 1995, featuring an interview that Binkley did with British violinist John Holloway back in 1992. It strikes me that it would be very interesting for an audience listening now to know where you found your guidance or your guidelines uh, in terms of everything to do with choice of instruments, choice of voices, choice of techniques. Uh, we're used to the idea that there's your generation for us to come to. But who did you go to? Uh, I think that I was very fortunate in really not having much of a generation to go to because this was fairly unknown repertoire at the time. Nobody performed this repertoire uh, very seriously. And I think that 
there are two things that guided me then, uh, and, and the proportions changed a good deal. One thing that guided me at that time was simply uh, whatever I happened to know about historical sources, I felt that these are truths that you do not violate. Uh, that uh, uh, one of the things I want to be as credible as a performer of historical music, in other words, I want historical style to be the thing, not whether it's successful with an audience, because I couldn't expect an audience uh, to necessarily respond to historical accuracy and performance. So I, I did want performances to be historically accurate. But uh, on the other hand, there's no test for historical accuracy and performance, is there? And, and so that uh, the documents don't go very deeply. They don't help a great deal. So I, I would build up uh, theses. Uh, today I would believe something. I might not believe it tomorrow, but I would try to be consistent for the day. I believed that these songs were accompanied because uh, – the monophonic songs were accompanied because I felt that that uh, is the sort of thing a singer would do if he wants to sing uh, effectively. And I felt that singers did want to sing effectively. And uh, since singers then had no compunction about historical accuracy and performance, I, I felt that it was very likely that if they had the opportunity, they would sing with accompaniment rather than without. What the accompaniment would, would be, well, now that uh, is limited to a certain extent by – uh, my view at that time was that composition was not uh, an element in the creation of an accompaniment, that you didn't sit down and write out an accompaniment as an arranger would today. So it had to evolve from the technique of the instrument. And uh, whatever was easy to play would be more likely played than what was difficult to play. And, and that's what I tried to do. Uh, I didn't really have models. A, a little later on, I had the opportunity with the ensemble to uh, do some extensive tours in exotic lands in North Africa, in Asia, and uh, uh, various places, and observed then that um, most of the world's music is monophonic, and they find out how to deal with that music very well, uh, with elegance and with art and with, with philosophy, with a great deal of thought and care and study. And I thought that this is uh, that aspect, that is, that the taking monophonic music seriously as a performer uh, may possibly be an element in Western medieval music, and I, and I tried to do that, and of course that's when my ideas about how to do this gradually changed and evolved.
From a recording called Vox Humana, the Studio der Frühenmusik, with music of the German minnesinger Meister Alexander. On Harmonia this week, we're commemorating the 20th anniversary of the passing of Thomas Binkley, founder of the studio, pioneer in the world of medieval music, and founder of the Indiana University Early Music Institute, now the Historical Performance Institute. You're listening to Harmonia, a program of early music that comes to you from the studios of WFIU at Indiana University. Partial support for Harmonia comes from Penco Incorporated of Bedford, Indiana. Partial support also comes from Early Music America, fostering the performance, scholarship, and community of early music on the web at earlymusicamerica.org. I'm Angela Mariani. Welcome back to Harmonia. This year marks 20 years since the passing of medieval music scholar and performer Thomas Binkley. 
We're listening to excerpts from a conversation between Binkley and violinist John Holloway, recorded here at Indiana University in 1992 and broadcast first on Harmonia after Binkley passed away in 1995. And we're listening to some of the groundbreaking recordings of the Studio de Frühenmusik. Initially, we began recording um, as a result of a letter I wrote to Telefunken saying that we would like to make records, and they wrote back saying, well, all right, let's try it. Uh, they didn't ask what the repertoire was. They didn't care what the repertoire was. They cared that it was early music, and they had a, a, a series of uh, recordings in a, called the Salte Werk, uh, and they thought, well, early music, and here's a young professional group. Well, maybe they can be helpful to us there. Let's see what they can do. And so we did a couple of records for them, and, and that was fine. Then I said, well, I'd like to do a recording of Carmina Burana. That is the, not the Orf, but the, the original. And they thought, oh, well, all right, if you want to, we'll give that a try too. And that turned out to be um, financially successful for them, uh, much to their surprise and much to our surprise. It was not particularly financially successful to us, but it was to them, <laughs> and uh, contracts being what they were. Uh, so that gave us... Uh, a certain leverage, I suppose. Uh, they never insisted that we do something. They would sometimes, the record companies, would insist that we use a particular artist. Uh, they would uh, say that we have to record in such and such a place, and they would sometimes um, forget to let us check over the final tapes before the recordings were brought out. But uh, they never really interfered or even suggested repertoire. Ignis at quam ignis venit amnis singulis, 
Monstrator, Gott Amator, Omnibus in Seculis, Honoranda Frequentanda Regibus et Populis, Festum Agitur, Dies Recolitur, In Patagon Frangitur, Et Amalek Vincitur, Natus Agarpellitur, Jerusalem erripitur, et Christianis rettitur, Iem Polamus higitur. Urzacrata celitus, Adamata superis, Ligis abernaculum, Templum arche fideris, Hospitale pauperum, et asylum miseris, non timidis aliquit, humilia manzaris, tanta lucis claritate, superato sole luna, tanta vicit santitate, omnis orbes ecurs una, non ne legit prostra locum, vivus elos parre. Nomen a Solemnibus, from the Studio de Frohenmusik's recording of pieces from the medieval Carmina Burana manuscript, recorded in the early 60s. When we started our professional career, I think we were one of the few really professional musical groups in Europe at all. We didn't teach. We didn't work for anybody else. We lived entirely from giving concerts. And there were not very many groups in Europe anywhere that were doing that. I would say through the 60s that was true. Uh, we never did. Uh, uh, well, the, the very end when we got, so we weren't, weren't touring very much. We we, we did, then did go to Basel and uh, for two or three years did teaching there. But otherwise, we were completely professional. We never never taught or or worked for universities or or conservatories or anything. You you went to Basel uh, at the invitation of the of the scholar as an ensemble. Yes, or? this was in the late seventies, and it came about as a result of the fact that our... Well, let, let me say that the studio normally in a year would give maybe 120 concerts. Uh, we were touring about 10 months of the year, uh, but not 10 months in a row and then two months off, but, but, but spread out as musicians do. In other words, constantly going. And uh, we would carry about five programs with us. And that meant that... Uh, we'd play each program 20 times or 25 times or so and sometimes more in a case of a year and that wears thin after a while. We were interested in doing other things, other areas of music. I was particularly interested in dramatic music and in liturgical music, something that you couldn't take on tour, that a quartet couldn't do. And so I found that uh, when invitations for concerts would come in or tours, that I would figure out reasons why we couldn't do them. And then I, I realized what I was doing. <laughs> we were playing less because I just didn't want to work on that stuff anymore. So we, uh, at that time, uh, the Scuola Cantorum in Basel said, why don't you come here? And so I said, yeah, that'd be a good idea. That would give us a chance to stop doing all of this touring and maybe get into these other areas that, that are interesting. And uh, so we did that. I think we were there teaching for uh, at least three, maybe four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we, we uh, decided to stop entirely. 
was from a recording of the Cantigas de Santa Maria recorded by musicians of the Scola Cantorum in Basel with members of the Studio de Frunmusik, all directed by Thomas Binkley, dating from the 70s when Binkley taught at the Scola. Many, many of Binkley's students from the Scola Cantorum went on to become acclaimed performers of early music in their own right. Early music listeners may also have recognized in that particular recording we just heard the voice of Montserrat Figueras, who performed for many years with Jordi Saval and Hesperion. Sadly, Montserrat Figueras also passed away in 2011. We've been listening to an excerpt from a program about Thomas Binkley that first aired shortly after he passed away. This week we're rebroadcasting portions of that program to commemorate the 20th anniversary of his passing.
Are there performances that are on on record of the studio that you think particularly uh, manage, despite the restrictions of recording, to capture really what you wanted to say about? Yes, I think there are probably four recordings of the monophonic repertoire, five maybe, that that I think contain uh, really good examples of that. Uh, the one of the Chanson de Trouvert, one of the Chanson de uh, Troubadour, uh, Minnesang und Spruchdichtung, a telefunken recording, and one done uh, through the Scuola Cantorum uh, called, I think it's Cantigas de Santa Maria. Mm. We could take Chantorai pur mon Courage, a song which reflects the situation of a woman in France and her husband or lover uh, on a crusade. And that uh, east-west conflict that, uh, you know, seen through the eyes of the uh, 13th century or 12th century uh, musician. Another example of, of uh, how the instruments assume symbolic importance. In the case of the Chantarai, it's, it's what did the medieval musician think Eastern sounds were? Another thing that occurs to me in, in connection with uh, these ideas of, of representative recordings is um, a kind of a, a kind of introduction to a piece, instrumental introduction that does occur in some of the world's music, and that, that uh, I simply uh, rethought out and and, and applied uh, in, in a little example you'll hear here, in which. Uh, our, the, the, the basic idea is that you have total disorganization and the gradual emergence of sense and logic. Uh, a kind of a uh, series of sound events that are unplanned but gradually gain cohesiveness over maybe 30 seconds or so and then, then evolve into a, a sensible sort of melodic entertainment that, that then leads into a, a piece. And uh, the piece in this case is not so important, but just the, the, the approach is. This is a, a first event in the performance of some Andalusian nuba or, or, or nubat. Uh, these are basically Moroccan musicians playing a, a Spanish-Arabic uh, song tradition uh, with uh, special instruments and special performance techniques, uh, which I had the opportunity at one point to study, and, and I came away uh, with, with great respect and, and having learned a great deal from them. And this is one of the things that, that I learned from them.
One of the things that, that I noticed about my own work, uh, previous work, is that I seem to be associated with ideas concerned with Arabic influence, uh, the accompaniment of monophonic song and, and, and various things that uh, really do not reflect what I think and what I did. I have very seldom recorded or played anything that is remotely Arabic. When I'm accused... Uh, of, of uh, Arabistic thought, it is, I would say, on the whole, through a lack of familiarity of my accusers with what Arabic music is. And, and Arabic music is something quite different than what I do. No Arab would think that what I do is Arabic or Arabic-inspired. But it is inspired from by the use of the instrument in, in the similar ways. And it's quite a different thing entirely. Uh, uh, I was probably the first lute player who played so much uh, to use plectrum lute, to use the Arabic oud, to move into non-Renaissance instruments. I've been doing that since, since 1960. And, uh, of course, if you pick up an instrument as an instrumentalist, uh, you soon learn the things that it likes to do. So that what governed my 
instrumentation and use of instruments was, was simply that. I always asked the question, what does the instrument want to play? And did it. And if you ask that question, uh, much of the subsequent discussions are pointless. Studio de Fron Musique from their version of Troubadour Pierre Cardinal Cervantes' La Ferre del Comte de Guillaume. That was from a recording called L'Agonie du Languedoc, a musical chronicle of the Albigensian Crusade in which many troubadours and their patrons were killed or exiled and much of the culture of the area called Languedoc destroyed. This week's edition of Harmonia has been a special tribute to Thomas Binkley, a pioneer in the world of early music performance, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of his passing in 1995 at the age of 63. 
We've been listening to some of Binkley's many recordings and excerpts from a conversation between Binkley and violinist John Holloway, recorded at Indiana University in 1992. Tom Binkley made over 50 recordings, many of which were award-winning, in addition to scholarly writings and the founding of the Early Music Institute at Indiana University. His willingness to sail into uncharted musical waters and take risks changed the way medieval music is performed. His legacy is also carried on by the hundreds of students and colleagues who were influenced by his work. When I began producing Harmonia, I was still a student of Binkley's, and he was supportive of it. I've always found it ironic that Harmonia became a nationally syndicated program two months after Tom Binkley passed away. A couple of years before, when I told him that I was a little worried that doing this radio program might interfere with my graduate work, he said, you should do it anyway. You never know where it might lead. That was Tom. Do it anyway. Take that risk and think for yourself. Harmonia is a production of WFIU and part of the educational mission of Indiana University. Additional resources come from the William and Gail Cook Music Library at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. We welcome your thoughts about any part of this program or about early music in general. You can leave a comment or question anytime by visiting harmoniaearlymusic.org and clicking on Contact. The writer for this edition of Harmonia is me, Angela Mariani. Our engineer back in 1995 was Pat Hawkins. Special thanks to our present-day studio engineer, Mike Pashkash, and our staff, Janelle Davis, John Bailey, Elizabeth Clark, and Joe Getz. Additional technical support comes from KTTZ at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Our producer is Luann Johnson, and I'm Angela Mariani, inviting you to join us again for the next edition of Harmonia. <laughs>